Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul faced a lot of ridicule and opposition as he continued on his missionary journey through Greece. And yet the Lord encouraged him not to be afraid. He told Paul to keep on speaking and he promised that he would be with him. And so Paul remained in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the believers about the Lord. Luke tells us in Acts 18 verse 12 that while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. It is believed that the Jewish leaders brought their accusations against Paul just as Gallio took up office as proconsul of Achaia. Hoping to influence him against the Christians from the very start, they complained about Paul's apparent disregard for the law of Moses. But the proconsul, who was actually well known for his fairness, chose not to play into their hands. He declared that he had no authority in matters of their own law. He told them to settle the issue themselves and even had his guards drive the troublemakers from his presence. Apparently, Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, was the person who'd suggested they go to the Roman official in the first place, because when their plan failed, the other Jews turned on him and beat him in front of the courthouse. However, Gallio, being a shrewd man, showed no concern whatsoever. He knew that Paul was not guilty of any real crime, and he also realized that he needed to protect his own political future, and so it was wise for him not to get involved. Their lack of success meant that Paul was able to stay in Corinth for some time until he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kenhrei because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, 
He declined, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Accompanied by his two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul left Corinth via the main seaport of Kenchrei, and it was there that Luke tells us Paul cut off his hair because of a vow he'd taken to God. It's very likely that vow Paul undertook was a Nazarite vow, which Jews of that time would make when they wanted to thank God for his blessing. The person undertaking the vow would not eat meat or drink wine for 30 days as he allowed his hair to regrow. At the end of 30 days, his hair would be cut off again and along with other offerings, it would be burnt on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem as an offering to God. No doubt Paul took this vow to thank God for his encouragement and protection while in Corinth. Although he stopped briefly in Ephesus to preach in their synagogue, he was anxious to get to Jerusalem to complete his vow, and so he left Priscilla and Aquila there to continue the work with the promise that he would return if it was God's will. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul apparently fulfilled his vow in Jerusalem and after greeting the brethren there, he began his return journey by road to Ephesus. Along the way, he stopped in Antioch where his mission had originally begun several years before. After spending a short amount of time there, he set out once more on what would become known as his third missionary journey. He travelled to the churches he'd previously planted throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia to strengthen the believers in each one. And as Paul made his way back to his friends in Ephesus, Luke updates us on what had been happening there in his absence. Verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Ephesus was the chief seaport in the Roman province of Asia, and historians estimate that about 300,000 people lived in the city. Like Athens, it was a centre of learning and had a great library with 12,000 scrolls in it. There was also a wonderful theatre in Ephesus that could seat 25,000 people. But Ephesus was more than a commercial, cultural and academic hub. It was also an important religious centre as well, with its huge temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. 
This temple, known as the Artemision, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was in the shadow of this impressive structure that the early church of Ephesus thrived. You will remember that Priscilla and Aquila had been dropped off in Ephesus when the team left Corinth, and while they were waiting for Paul to return to the city, a Jewish man by the name of Apollos arrived. Apollos had been born in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, which was another extremely important centre of education at that time. Not surprisingly, Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. He was a very sincere man. He was fervent in his preaching and he was accurate up to a point. But he only knew about the baptism performed by John the Baptist, the baptism of repentance that prepared people for the coming Messiah. When we deal with the next passage, that will make more sense to us. But it seems that although Apollos must have understood the need for repentance, and though he surely recognized Jesus as the Messiah, he had not fully understood all that Jesus had accomplished in his death and resurrection. And he knew nothing of the Holy Spirit who had come in power. Aquila and Priscilla, hearing his preaching, immediately realized that there were gaps in his understanding, and so they gently took him into their home and explained the gospel to him more fully. After receiving their instruction, Apollos continued his passionate preaching about Jesus in Ephesus, but his heart began to be stirred in another direction. No doubt Priscilla and Aquila had told him of their time in Corinth and the many believers that they had left there. Luke tells us in verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, where Corinth was, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. Having come to know Jesus as his saviour and being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Apollos travelled to Corinth and soon made his mark. Like the Athenians, Corinthians loved public debate and Apollos was a brilliant speaker, very effective in demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This was a great help to the young church there, and Apollos became one of their most influential teachers, as we see later in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. In Acts 19 verse 1, Luke goes on to tell us that meanwhile, Paul had finally arrived at Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, 
that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. When Paul finally arrived in Ephesus, he encountered some men who, though they called themselves disciples, had also not fully understood the gospel. It's quite possible that these individuals had heard Apollos preach before he'd fully understood the message of Christ, for they too had only received John's baptism and they had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Once again, Paul began with people where they were, and his explanation is really quite simple. He affirms that John's baptism was indeed one of repentance for the Jews. However, John the Baptist himself had said that people should believe in the one who would come after him, and that one is Christ Jesus. Immediately the men responded and were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, and as soon as Paul touched them, the Holy Spirit came on them in a very evident way. They not only began to speak in tongues, but they also began to prophesy. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. As was his custom, Paul began reasoning and persuading the people at the synagogue in Ephesus, but not all accepted his message about Christ, and in fact, Luke notes that they stubbornly refused to believe, and they began to publicly slander the way, which, if you remember, was what people called Christianity in those early days of the church. In response, Paul withdrew from the synagogue, taking the followers of Jesus with him, and he began to reason with people daily in the lecture hall of a philosopher by the name of Tyrannus. Not much is known about the school, except that the name Tyrannus means our tyrant, and so one wonders if this wasn't the nickname given to the philosophy teacher by his pupils. Whatever the case, it seems that Paul was able to use the classroom when it was free, which would customarily have been in the afternoon when most Mediterranean people took time off work to rest. He taught there for two years, and because Ephesus was such a vibrant trade and tourist city, Luke says that all who lived in the Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit was also working through Paul in other ways to confirm the truth of the gospel message. And Luke explains in verse 11 that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. 
Luke was very careful to emphasize that it was not Paul who accomplished these amazing miracles. It was God working through him to heal the sick and to free the oppressed. Word spread about these incredible events that were linked to the name of Jesus, and others in the city became particularly interested in Paul's ministry. Look at verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. It was not uncommon for Jewish priests to seek to cast out demons from people, and in fact Luke tells us that there were seven sons of a Jewish priest who were engaged in this type of ministry in Ephesus itself. Hearing of Paul's incredible authority over evil spirits, they decided that it might be just as well to use the name of Jesus when they tried to cast out demons too. But from what Luke reveals here, we know that that did not work for them. And some might wonder why they had such difficulty. Well, notice verse 13 shows that when addressing the demons, they would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They were invoking Christ's name almost as if it were a lucky rabbit's foot, a type of charm. But one day the evil spirit challenged them, scornfully asking, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, causing them to flee the scene naked and bleeding. We can learn some really important things from this encounter. First of all, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. But more importantly, they apparently also know who belongs to him and who does not. They knew that Paul was covered by the blood of Christ and that he was sealed with the Holy Spirit. They knew he spoke with the authority of Christ himself, and they also knew that the seven sons of Siva did not. Everyone living in Ephesus heard about this and were filled with awe. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor because it was evident that it was only those who belonged to him who had any real power over the realm of evil. Because of what happened with the sons of Siva, Luke reports in verse 18 that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 
In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The new believers who had been involved with witchcraft before they came to Christ were empowered to make a clean break with their former way of life. Realizing Jesus' incredible power over evil, they publicly burned their many scrolls on magic and spells. The fact that the value of what they destroyed was estimated at 50,000 drachmas means little to us today, but to help you grasp how significant this was, it was the equivalent of a year's wages for 150 men, which would be millions of dollars today. But nothing was as valuable to them as knowing and obeying Christ, who is Lord over all. The ministry in Ephesus was flourishing, but Paul later reveals that his heart was troubled over news of how the Jerusalem church was suffering, and he determined to do something to help them. Verse 21. After this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Though Paul's ultimate destination was Rome, he first planned to take a love offering to the church in Jerusalem to aid the believers there. To make good use of his time, though, he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead to Macedonia to gather the offering that those churches wished to send with him, while he continued teaching in Ephesus a while longer. However, opposition began to increase in that city. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know how we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people discredited province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be credited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When pilgrims came to Ephesus to worship at the temple of Artemis, they liked to take souvenirs home, such as little model shrines which the silversmiths made. But as people turned to Christ in great numbers, their fascination with the goddess Artemis waned, and the demand for the silversmiths' work declined. At least they understood Paul's message that man-made gods are no gods at all. And though the silversmiths claimed that they didn't want to see Artemis discredited or robbed of her divine majesty, their real motivation was their greed and their need to protect their business. 
With their livelihood at risk, they took matters into their own hands, rushing through the city and inciting a mob to rise up against those who preached the good news of Jesus. When the people in the streets heard their concerns, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed forward Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The crowd was in uproar, and although Paul had originally been their target, they were only able to seize two of his companions instead. The mob dragged them into the theatre, which, with its 25,000 seats, was large enough to accommodate them. Paul, courageous as ever, immediately wanted to appear before the crowd to make his case, However, he was restrained by other disciples who feared for his life. Even some of the city leaders begged him not to venture into the theatre, for they were concerned that the situation could explode at any minute. There was a lot of confusion, and we learned that most of the people didn't even know why they were there, which is often typical of crowd dynamics. It seems that Jews from the city synagogue wanted to distance themselves from Paul's ministry and so they pushed forward one of their own members, Alexander, to address the crowd and assure them that they had nothing to do with Paul. However, when the crowd realized that Alexander was a Jew, it only further infuriated them because they knew the Jews did not approve of their worship of Artemis either. For the next two hours, the people screamed, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was the city clerk who finally calmed things down. Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. 
After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. We assume that the image of Artemis that they worshipped was a statue of some sort, but because it's described as having fallen from the sky, many now believe that it was likely a meteorite. Whatever it was, the clerk's argument was that all men everywhere would always remember Artemis and her great temple in Ephesus. But how wrong he was. Few remember her today, and Ephesus is more widely known for the church that grew there than for her temple which has long been destroyed. The clerk pointed out that Paul and his associates had not done anything illegal and that if the silversmiths had a case against them, they should bring it to the courts rather than incite a riot. He was concerned because Ephesus was a free city. In other words, although part of Rome's empire, the citizens of Ephesus were allowed to govern themselves. However, if Rome charged them with civil disorder and they could not give a reasonable account for their actions, they would be at risk of losing all of their freedoms. When that reality sunk in, the mob quickly released the Christians and the illegal gathering dissolved. With that, though, Paul knew that his work in Ephesus was coming to an end, and he set his face toward Jerusalem and then on to Rome. We'll see in the next lessons just how his plans worked out. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.